WKNC 88.1, you are listening to Eye in the Triangle. It's All Souls Day, November 1st, and I'm your host, Chris Chaffee. This week, we got lots of good stuff for you. Jacob Downey has produced a story about the NCR Museum's new Rembrandt exhibit. Jake Lengua has prepared a radio play. We have an interview from the Raleigh Public Record with Mayor-elect Nancy McFarlane. Mark Herring will have a story about the traditions of the ROTC group here on campus. And we will also have soccer news, the community calendar, and the weather. And that's where we'll start tonight with uh, Jake Lingua with the weather. Jake, how's it uh, going out here? Uh, it's looking really nice today. Thanks, Chris. Uh, after a rainy Halloween Eve, today's been, today was quite the lovely day. Uh, tonight, expect temperatures to drop down to the mid and upper 30s. Tomorrow will be another beautiful day with highs reaching into the mid-60s and then dropping into the mid-30s by nightfall. Thursday, precipitation will be back with sunny skies in the morning, but by evening we'll be seeing cloudy and rainy weather. Expect a high of 66 during the day and a low of 46 in the evening. Friday will be a rainy morning, but expect the clouds to clear out by evening. Over the weekend, expect cooler temperatures and partly cloudy skies on Saturday and Sunday. So, Chris, keep those sweaters and raincoats handy for the next week. It's going to be some crazy weather. Thanks, Jake. Um, now, when you think of military tradition, uh, rather, when you think of the military, tradition comes to mind. The ROTC group here at NC State has traditions of its own. Mark Herring brings us a story about one of their greatest traditions. It's called Air Force Dining In. Few people associate traditional military ceremonies with food fights, poetic duels, and cadet insubordination. But the Air Force tradition of dining in defies all stereotypes. United States Air Force Commander Colonel Jefferson Dunn calls it a rowdy experience. And they run the gamut. They can be kind of subdued or they can be wild and crazy. Uh, I've been at dining inns in which uh, the food was flying and uh, folks were diving under the tables and I've been to them that were a little bit more subdued. But I, I think the point of dining in is to build camaraderie, okay. you know, is yeah. to, to give the cadets an opportunity to come together uh, and participate in something that's got a, a rich tradition in our military um, in which officers primarily get together, they share a meal together, they share the history, they share traditions, and then they share just uh, a lot of uh, good-humored fun and uh, just some of those things that kind of make up the military lifestyle. According to Lieutenant Colonel Chris Freshner, commander of the Air Force ROTC detachment at NC State, the traditions of dining in have ancient roots. What exactly is the, the significance of dining in, and what was the most important thing for you when you were a cadet doing dining in? Dining in uh, goes way back to Roman times, back to Roman legionnaires who used to do dining in uh, as a way to celebrate victory, military victory, and that kind of stuff. It's evolved through the ages. Uh, we picked it up from the British uh, and, and the way that, that we do dining ins. Uh, this part that we're watching right now with this game is not a traditional dining in part. This is something that the cadets uh, enjoy doing, and they create a game. Uh, and, and learn different skills from it. Uh, uh, but uh, later when we actually do the sit-down portion of dining in, there's, there's rules to the mess and there's uh, different, different things that they do. And from that they learn uh, just different military traditions, really. I and mean, it's part of military tradition. The, uh, the cadets, uh, when I was a cadet, you know, 20-something years ago, uh, it was the same. I learned the same way. It was by, by experiencing these traditions. Uh, and I actually, on active duty, didn't do too terribly many dining ins that weren't combat dining ins, which are a little looser in format, like kind of like this is. Uh, formal dining ins are very, very, very formal. Uh, when I went up to Canada 
and uh, I was stationed up there actually. Uh, they were dining inns where, where a bagpiper would call us into the dining hall. So it was pretty neat. It was some neat stuff. Uh, but that's when I, once I was on active duty, that was the only really formal dining inns I had on active duty. The ones I learned as a cadet, though, really taught me military traditions, taught me that there, there were these rules that I had to follow. And, uh, and really, it just teaches you how to be uh, attentive to every detail, which is what we do. Uh, in the force, you know, we've got to be attentive to whatever job we're at, whether you're controlling an airplane or you're handling a $2 billion budget. You better know the details. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we treat, try and teach our people. And especially with the uh, coordinators of the event. So Cadet Stevenson, he's, you know, been doing all the planning. How does that translate into what he'll be doing as an officer? Leadership and flexibility. Uh, absolutely. Just the fact that he's got to coordinate. I mean, you can just see him right now. He's coordinating. They're probably modifying their rules right now just by what they saw were some potential hazards out there. And you can see these different teams are strategizing. Uh, so everyone's learning strategy. They're learning uh, how to lead uh, by, by being part of a group. They don't have to be the leader of the group, but emerging points to, to make yourself known, make yourself vocal, uh, you know, bring, come up with a new strategy, plan, just, just planning and inventing a game like this and then executing it with a hundred other people. Um, that takes leadership, you know, and, uh, and that's what we try and teach. We try and teach leadership. That's what it's really all about. You know, you could want to be the greatest fighter pilot in the world, but if you aren't going to lead people, I, I can't use you as an officer in our air force. So, you know, that's, that's what it's about. We're building leaders here. This year's Dining In, organized by student cadet William Stevenson, consisted of field activities, skits, drinking from a grog of mixed beverages, and a speech by Colonel Dunn on leadership. And in typical Air Force fashion, the night ended with the singing of their official anthem. From Eye on the Triangle, I'm Mark Herring. Rembrandt is considered one of the greatest artists in history, and the North Carolina Museum is paying homage to Rembrandt with the largest exhibit in North America. Jacob Downey was there to check it out. Here's his story. Sunday, October 30th, the North Carolina Museum of Art opened a new exhibit expected to bring in thousands of visitors from around the country and the world. The new exhibit is Rembrandt in America. In all, the museum is hoping to bring more than 150,000 visitors to the East Building to see the largest exhibition of authentic Rembrandt paintings ever curated from American collections. The exhibit featuring at least 27 original Rembrandt von Rehn paintings explores how the lucrative market created by the collecting habits of wealthy American industrialists impacted the false attribution of paintings to the Dutch master. It is now believed that Rembrandt created more than 320 original paintings. But at the peak of the collecting craze, catalogs listed his numbers of originals available to be more than 700. Authenticity is the heart of this collection, inviting the viewer to enjoy questioning what is and what is not a Rembrandt. This collection does include two of the most authentic Rembrandts ever displayed together, two of his self-portraits, one crafted in his early 20s, about to test his ambition and talents in Amsterdam, and the other himself in his mid-60s, reflecting on diminishing fortunes and lost opportunities by holding on to the integrity of his art style. Dennis Weller, curator of Rembrandt in America, speaks to what Rembrandt brought to his self-portraits. Um, I think it's a psychological examination of themselves. Rembrandt was not content just to show his features. You, know, you look at a Rembrandt self-portrait or otherwise, and you kind of enter into their mindset. So it's the psychology that 
that I think is to play and, and bringing life to the figures, which Rembrandt did uh, early on in Amsterdam. Coinciding with Rembrandt and America is another history-making exhibit at the North Carolina Museum of Art. They're featuring their first collection of college student artwork curated by college students. The exhibit is self-observed, and it is a collection of self-portraits of mixed mediums from college students across the country of all ages that further Rembrandt's quest of identity through depicting the balance between the influence the world has on an artist and the impact that they are trying to have on the world. The curatorial projects class from UNC Chapel Hill talked to Eye on the Triangle a little bit about their goals for the collection. We definitely wanted to make a show that was enjoyable. We wanted to find something that people could relate to and that would draw people in from the Rembrandt show nearby to get more people to come look at our show. But we also wanted to make a show that kind of broadened people's horizons, that we didn't just want to make something appealing, but we wanted to make something that was full of art that um, we appreciated and that we thought other people would appreciate and was eye-opening as well. Almost every portrait artist takes full advantage of the classic trope, the eyes or the windows to the soul. This is to showcase their talent, to play with the palette of colors or to toy with the conflict of light and dark. It's the, the denial of the face that uh, really makes David Sean and NC State design students self-portrait detainment number four so memorable this self-portrait is a black and white photograph depicting himself bound in a dark plastic bag tied over his head with a caution tape x uh, over his face to convey suffering um my name is david sean and i go to nc state university and i'm in design studies i chose the piece that i thought was the most striking and possibly the most personal out of the ones that i'd done and also had some some advice from a few instructors as well i particularly remember um Speaking to uh, Holly Fisher, she's a uh, she's an instructor over at Meredith College. Actually, she um, she taught a class at State last spring, and so I had been in touch with her, and then I emailed her, and then just kind of got her opinion on a few things. I've actually I'm actually not that familiar with Rembrandt's work, to be honest, but I'm sure that he's influenced other people who have then influenced me. So I say, that's probably say indirectly, yes, but not so much directly. Janice Gravely, whose self-portrait depicts the joy she receives by making art, a continuing education from Barton College, explains that indirect relationship these artists to Rembrandt further. Only by generation from generation to generation, because Rembrandt was a student of, not directly, but indirectly, of Caravaggio, who was the... Uh, real progenitor of all people who have dark backgrounds. Following um, Travaccio, Rembrandt, then a couple of other people, and then uh, Lamar Dodd, who was the teacher of our professor, Chris Wilson, who is the teacher of us. And so that's how we got uh, acquainted with the effectiveness of using that dark background. Michelle Heller, an educational curator at the North Carolina Museum of Art, talks about the impact that Self-Observed has had on the art museum itself. Just to share from the museum's standpoint the effect that this exhibition had on future college programs has been tremendous. These students have piloted the first jury college art exhibition but it has been so widely successful that we are already planning for next fall to have another opportunity in prime real estate, not just in the education galleries, but downstairs with the featured exhibition where we expect 
over 100,000 people to walk through this gallery and see these self-portraits. So we are planning the next exhibition for next fall already, and we, will, we definitely want to work with another curatorial projects or museum studies class from a um, North Carolina college because it's made such a difference to have this curated and juried by students. From their perspective, the language of the labels from their perspective, and the choices they made, I think were different than the choices I might have picked out, but I'm so glad that they were different from the choices that I might have picked out as a museum educator. We also have had, are building on the success of the quality of work that's in this exhibition to offer stu college students the chance to be on the museum's billboards, our park pictures series. The curators um, of the museum have offered that to college students for the first time in February for a prize of $500 per billboard. And that will give students that use the Greenway and experience the museum park on a daily basis an opportunity of showcasing their work as well. So these students have really made a bigger impact than I think they even understand at this time. Both Self-Observed and Rembrandt in America will be on display until January 22, 2012 at the North Carolina Museum of Art. If you are interested in contributing to student exhibitions, please visit ncartmuseum.org. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Jacob Downey. In the past on Eye on the Triangle, we have aired radio plays. However, this radio play we have for you today is different. It was written, produced, and stars a very own Jake Lingua with two actors that has worked with him. It's called The Fearless Ranger, and it starts right now. Now, brought to you by Dry Oat Germ, the oat germ that leaves you salivating for more, the Fearless Ranger. When we left off last week, the ranger was riding into town with a corpse in tow. Whoa. Fearless Ranger, don't you know you're not allowed back here? You killed 17 people last week. I was administering justice. Did you have to kill women and children? Sometimes casualties get in the way of justice. Did you have to sleep with my wife? Well, that was for fun. Now I see you dragging a body behind you. Who'd you kill now? What did he ever do, hmm? I found this stiff and recently deceased pass. Hmm, third one this week. That's a lot of dead bodies, Ranger, and you're trying to tell me it weren't you? You know I ain't never touched no bow and arrow since my parents died in a frick bow accident. Did they fall on their own errors? No, nah, they were strangled on the bowstring. Shoot, Ranger, we may need your expertise. Looks like there's a killer on the loose. I'll call a town meeting. Come on now, Chillums. My honey chillies, calm down. Them's Indian errors. We should go out and find them all. Who done spilled beans on my chaps? It was them Indians. I seen it, I provisioned it, but they wasn't visible. Unbeknownst to the dim-witted denizens of dry Deadwood Gulch, they were finding themselves enmeshed in the machinations of none other than Professor Codswabble, the most intensely evil intellect west of the Mississippi, miles away in his foul den. <laughs> if my predilections are correct, and they always are, my precarious ploy should be put into perpetuation. Ah, uh, Gideon, you're back. You are watching from the hills as I commanded. Hmm? What of the body I instructed you to watch? Some man took it away. Where did he take it? That way. Which way, Gideon? East or west? That one. Back to town. Uh, never mind, Gideon. What did the man look like? 
He rode a pure white horse. Ugh. Such a purebred Persian could only belong to one man, the fearless ranger. When he gets here, he'll have quite a surprise. And then, if my plan carries out as intended, and they always do, the bumbling buffoons will exterminate the natives for me. And I will be able to swoop in and purchase their land for an absurdly cheap price. Pennies, an acre, giddy, and all of it rich with silver, unbeknownst to the dupes. Yo, show them all, boss. Meanwhile, in the town of Deadwood Dry Gulch, a suspicious ranger does some detective work over the now-trampled body rotting in the center of town. I guess this is as good a place as any to begin my search. Let's see. Excuse me, mister, you probably won't be missing whatever's in your hand right there. He finds the dead dunce's decomposed digits clutching a note. Dear Gideon, note to self. Remember to kill this prospector. Love, Gideon and Professor Codswabble. P.S. Don't forget to throw this note out. Come on, Ranger. The policy's almost ready to flush them engines out. Sheriff, I think you might want to take a look at this here note I found. I ain't got no time to read. In fact, I never had no time to learn how to read. I got a people to protect if you'll excuse me. Well, then, it looks like I'm on my own. Come on, Tonto. That's what I named my horse. To the scene of the crime. Meanwhile, back in the den of the deadly dastard. All right, Gideon. Here's the rifle. You know what to do, don't you? Uh, hang on, I dropped my note. Read it to me. Kill the fearless ranger. What are you going to kill him with? This rifle. Where are you going to do it from? The, uh, overlook. <laughs> Good lad, Gideon. Here's the bullets. Now be off with you, you blundering baboon. Little does our paragon of her protagonist, our antithesis to the antagonist, know he's riding into a tricky trap. It doesn't surprise me that Professor Codswabble is up to no good. But what could the professor possibly stand to gain by framing up the Indians? Besides, the professor usually likes to take credit for his dastardly deeds. Take five, Tonto. I've got to check for clues. Unbeknownst to our hero, the simpering sycophant's fingers tighten around the trigger of a rifle aimed at his head. He takes aim and whispers, You're finished, Ranger! But the fearless Ranger, sensing trouble, is too quick for the dim-witted assassin. However, his horse Tonto is not so lucky. Tonto rears up and is shot, a final sacrifice for his master. You're in for it now, Gideon. Your days of villainy are over. Suddenly, the lackey takes a bullet and tumbles to the ground. <gasps> no man can withstand the swift bullet of justice. Now to take care of that pesky professor once and for all. The hero braves the baffling bastion of the cliff that housed the hideous fiend. Without missing a step, he creeps upward. Hmm, looks as though that buffoon Gideon was done in. I expected as much. <laughs> now time to ready my trap. A quick run through. First, the ranger shall trip the wire, releasing the counterweight, sending the boulders down onto the inclined plane, in turn lifting up the lever and acting 
activating my cold-driven piston engine. The vibrations will lock a purposefully loosened stalactite that will drop onto my collection of fine china. Distraught over the shattered wealth, he'll look over in dismay. And that's when I'll shoot him! <laughs> Our hero comes to the entrance of the Sneedly Scholar's lair and prepares to enter. He draws his trusty gun and ventures forth bravely. The jig is up, you third-rate cattle rustler. I deduced your plan to rob the Indians blind during my climb. Come out and face me like a man. Figured me out, have you, you self-righteous cowboy? Well, unfortunately for you, I have one more trick up my sleeve. <laughs> but unfortunately for the pernicious professor, even the best-laid plans of men and machine can go horribly awry. His death trap malfunctions, and in moments the entire cavern is enveloped in smoke. The cowardly professor, seeing a chance at escape, bolts through a side exit in the cave. Stop! I've got your beautiful bride to be strapped to the train tracks down there! Joke's on you, bub. The riders forgot to ride in a love interest. Huh? The ranger, his sultry silhouette shadowed by shafts of sunlight, pauses to ponder for a moment. I hope that tasted sweet, Codswobble, because you just got your just dessert. Tune in next week for more adventures of the Fearless Ranger. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle here, and that was the Fearless Ranger. We're going to take a break, but we'll be right back. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. You are listening to Eye on the Triangle, and I am your host, Chris Chaffee. The Raleigh Public Record is a nonprofit news source that focuses exclusively on Raleigh news. In our continuing election coverage, we bring you an interview with Raleigh Public Record editor Charles Duncan Pardo and Nancy McFarland to discuss the next few years in Raleigh. My name is Charles Duncan Pardo with the Raleigh Public Record, and I am speaking with Nancy McFarlane, who just won the mayoral race for Raleigh. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming out. Um, so can you tell me what your plans are for the next two years? Well, you know, Raleigh's really in a great place, and I think that that was a message that we heard from the voters. They're uh, like being the number one city in the country, and they also, you know, with the passing of the bonds, acknowledge that, that it's really important to invest in our community. So I think that the main focus is going to be on making sure our economy stays strong and gets even stronger, and also really planning for growth. We're seeing more and more people move here, so we have to manage that carefully. Um, and voters did pass the bonds. Mm -hmm. Do you like how the discussions over light rail and high-speed rail have been going, and what are your plans there? Uh, they did. The bonds did pass. The only thing really in there was the transit station. And we've had a lot, of, a lot of good discussion about rail. I think people really understand how the dynamics of the area could change if we do see the growth that some people have um, talked about, anywhere from you know, 100,000 people coming in the next few years. So I think that what people really are looking for are transportation options. And I think that that means a, a combination of cars, but also light rail and buses and trolleys and bikes and walking. I think we really are looking at multimodal uh, transportation options. 
So you're going to be taking over this council with a lot of balls in the air. Um, and I think one of the most contentious is going to be the Leitner Center and where to put the police department. Right. So I know you supported the Leitner Center, and you're going to be the negotiator <laughs> over the next two years. So tell me what, what your thoughts are on that. I think I think that everyone does acknowledge that we have a need. You know, our 911 emergency services are at capacity. That is the most pressing need. And, you know, I think that we've really uh, had some good discussion, and I think that everybody's ready to really sit down and find out a solution that's going to work for all of us. Does there need to be some sort of interim measure for the 911 folks? Well, I, th I think everybody knows it's really going to be the first thing that we address, and it's going to be a matter of really getting some feedback on just how long it will take you know, with different options, building something new, rehabbing something, and that will be all part of what we uh, take into consideration. But it's something we're going to have to look at right away. And when you think about what you would like to see, is this something centralized, decentralized, well, I think when I originally saw the building that was proposed, uh, you know, I think that there are some things we can do looking at, at that model. You know, I think it will be toned down, maybe not quite as big, you know, maybe moving the emergency services down to the bottom. I think there's a lot of potential so that we can use the monies that we've already invested in that. Um, project, you know, we've relocated people and, and shifted space around. We have that space available. So I think the first thing would be maybe how do we best utilize the dollars we've already spent? It sounds like you're saying a centralized solution. Just to. <laughs> Well, I mean, I would say that having a, my own business, there is a lot of benefit to having your managers together. There's still a lot of tornado damage in mm -hmm. southeast Raleigh and northeast Raleigh. What What is going on with that? Well, uh, that was one of the parts of the bond, and that was one reason I was very happy that the voters stepped up and, and passed that, because there is tornado relief monies in there. And, you know, it's complicated. You know, people, some people have insurance. Some people may still be waiting on FEMA money. Um, you know, we're certainly aware. We're working with different groups that are assisting people. We're doing... Um, all different kinds of programs as best we can, but the bond money is really going to be helpful. And that that's for loans to people mm -hmm. who can't get insurance. Mm -hmm. So one of the other big balls is rewriting the entire zoning code. Um, do you like how that process has gone? Um, it, it is a big process, and I'm, I'm really glad that a few months ago we decided to slow it down a little bit. Um, it's, it's a complicated thing, and it's really important to get public input on that, but you know, unified development ordinance just in itself, just explaining what it is. Um, I just want to make sure that the process is right. I'm not as worried about the length of the process as I am with the outcome. And do you think there should be, I know, I know there's been some controversy over a map mm -hmm. to go along with this. Do you think that mapping process should be sped up? Well, I've actually heard both sides and that is something I'd like to sit down with the consultants that we have that are and are um, maybe Christy Dargis, the staff that's really looking at it to really get everybody kind of has an opinion on that right now but I really like to spend some time with the consultant going through and seeing what the pros and cons are of doing them separately or waiting and doing them together okay and I know we're running a little short on time here but 
I wanted to just ask you about water. There's this weird dynamic where if people conserve, rates go up. It's right. it's a pays for itself. What do we do with that when we could get another drought anytime? Right, right. Um, well, actually, that's a really good question because one thing that we looked at during the drought was exactly that model of um, people conserve and then they use less water and then you don't have as much income to run the utility. And based on that and talking to some people that are really key in the locally and in the state on water, that's not a sustainable model. So what um, actually I did last year was put together a group, we call it the WUTAT, Water Utility Transition Advisory Task Force, and what they're doing is looking at our water utility system, our stormwater system, our reuse water system, and saying what's a better model, what's a more sustainable model, is that something that we need to have all together as opposed to having a water system and a stormwater system over here is a way to recapture stormwater and work that in so that it's not every time you use your people feel like they're being punished for using less water. But what they also have to understand is the base of what their cost is, is the cost to run the system. There's a cost of water purification plants. There's a cost of water um, wastewater treatment plants. And that's why it's so important that we do things like protect Falls Lake and buy up some of that open space because the cleaner we can keep Falls Lake, the lower the cost is to purify that water. And so it's all very connected. So we have a task force that's come up with some great recommendations, and now they're really looking at how do we take that into a sustainable model that will take us into the future. So are we going to see the system change a lot in the next two years? Yeah, I'm kind of hoping that we will. Um, I think the stormwater is a huge issue for us. Um, We just just built a Whole Foods up here, and the stormwater system that they came up with is, I mean, they got a, a grant from the Clean Water Trust Fund because it's so innovative and nothing leads that site and what water they do capture and don't use is all reintroduced into the ground and that's really what we want to see so it can be done and i'm just really excited about the possibilities of taking different kinds of stormwater recapture and putting them into our water model to um, help us with drought and with stormwater runoff thank you so much for speaking with us thanks thanks for coming and you can Find that interview and more at RaleighPublicRecord.org. Now it's time to talk sports with Corey Smith and Nick Savage. So I'm here in closed production with Corey Smith, the deputy sports editor for the technician. So we're here to talk about sports. Yeah. Uh, What happened this weekend? (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's kind of the question that a lot of people were asking after this weekend is what really did happen. Uh, It was a game against FSU. Unfortunately, uh, there were so many ways that this game went wrong that it, it ends up looking just, it, it's a debacle in every sense of the word, I guess you could say. Uh, offense couldn't get anything going. Glennon only had 130 par- yards passing. Uh, as far as the running game, that I, I don't even know if there was a running game out there. Honestly, it was 36 yards rushing the ball between James Washington and Tony Creasy. Uh, the two of them combined for a whopping, like I said, 36 yards, and the biggest carry uh, was for eight yards. So neither one of them... Got a first down as far as, you know, from first and ten in those situations. Uh, and the only thing that looked actually halfway decent was third down efficiency, but they didn't really have a lot of first downs in the first place. So I think they ended up with about eight or nine um, conversions as far as third down efficiency is concerned, but they ended up with less than 15 first downs overall. So it ends up looking 
awful on paper, and it, I mean it looked awful on the field. They lost thirty-four to zero, gave up over four hundred yards against a Florida State team that you know has been resurged these last few weeks, but they haven't been one of the greatest teams in the ACC. Both of them went into it four and three, and NC State came out of it looking like a team that had no idea what it was doing on offense, no idea what it was doing on defense. Like I said, they gave up over 400 yards, didn't even get 200 yards, and Tom O'Brien in his press conference on Monday said, we need to basically pack up, forget about it, and move on. All right. So uh, also coming up this week, we have a game against UNC. Right? Yeah. And so this weekend, obviously, a, a lot of people put uh, a little bit of importance on this game, being being that it's a rivalry game. Uh, so... NC State, clearly, I think a lot of people know this, has won four straight. Uh, Tom O'Brien has never lost against UNC. So this is a a crucial game for him when it comes down to figuring out what's going on with this team, figuring out if they can get it going. Uh, I said it last week on this show, and I said it last week on my show as well. This team needs to win one of these next two games in order to make it to a postseason game. If they plan on making it to a bowl game, they need to beat either UNC or Clemson because Boston College and Maryland, while those look like easier wins, uh, I mean, nothing is promised in the ACC, but those look like easier wins. If they can get a win against UNC this weekend, they have confidence going into a BC game, which they're expected to win. But without that confidence against a team like UNC and getting blown out the week before against FSU, it doesn't look good as far as this team is concerned confidence-wise, if they plan on making it to a bowl game, if they plan on making it to a 7-5 and five record. So uh, this game is, is very crucial. If they want to go to a bowl, they need to win this game. So there's also a red and white game after the UNC game on Saturday? Yeah, actually, they don't have a, a set time for that one. It's uh, 30 minutes immediately after uh, the, the NC State and UNC game concludes. Their annual red and white game uh, so you'll see teams from you know on first and second team off or first and second team as far as both the teams are concerned, and they'll be going off against each other in RBC Center. So fans can go straight from Carter Finley over to the RBC Center. It's a short walk to go get over there and watch that game. Uh, so and fans will get to see Mark Gottfried and his UCLA high post offense for the first time. A little bit of a change from Sydney Lowe where a lot of people didn't really know what was going on offensively with the team. I think a lot of people are going to be looking at what's going on with this team and you know how they're going to go against each other on offense and defensively. Uh, it, it looks like Scott Wood, from everything that we've seen in practice, Scott Wood's shot has improved. Richard Howell, uh, as far as you know, him losing weight, I think a lot of people are going to be looking at him as possibly being a guy fighting for a first team, you know, fighting for a starting position. And looking at Scott Wood once again, he's also been improving defensively. So I think a lot of people can look for that this weekend too. Uh, Unfortunately, C.J. Williams went down with uh, a thumb injury. So he's going to be out for this game, and we don't know how long he's going to be out. Luckily, first few games are are not the best games in the world. So they they can afford him being out for these next few games, but they'll need him back. Uh, coming up, you know, when they go against teams like Syracuse, when they go against teams like, uh, you know, getting into the ACC play uh, and teams like Indiana before they make it to ACC play. So I think a lot of people are going to be looking for big things out of the team this weekend and trying to figure out what's going on with the basketball team as a whole. Cool. Sounds good. Thank you very much for coming in. All right. Thanks a lot, man.
And Corey's show, Pulse of the Pack, is on every Wednesday from 7 to 8 p.m. So tune in tomorrow for more sports coverage. Now, Matt Gardner is a soccer nut. I'm not. But when he decides to make soccer news, I'm captivated by his dramatic tales from the pitch. And this week is no exception. We'll start off this week recapping the action that took place between Chelsea and Arsenal as Chelsea were looking to rebound from a disappointing tie against QPR last week and Arsenal were desperate to win to help lift itself out of a terrible run of form. Things didn't look good for Arsenal as Chelsea only needed 14 minutes before Frank Lampard found the back of the net with a well-placed header on the near post. It wasn't Chelsea's first chance either as the goal made it look like it was going to be a long day for Arsenal at Stamford Bridge as both teams' defenses look consistently weak throughout the season. Later on in the first half, Arsenal striker Robin Van Persie found a well-placed pass from Gervinho, making it a tie game. Just before half, though, John Terry found plenty of space to work with inside the box on a poorly defended corner kick, and he had no trouble making it a 2-1 game in the 45th minute. Who knows what was said during halftime by Arsene Wenger, Arsenal's manager, as Arsenal came out like gangbusters with Santos scoring in the 49th and Walcott putting in a sensational strike in the 55th minute to make it 3-2 Arsenal. Things didn't end there, though. Chelsea found the Arsenal defense in crisis once again to equalize the game in the 81st minute with a well-placed ball from Juan Mata. Robin Van Persie wasn't done yet, though, and he showed once again what he's capable of doing by scoring not just one, not just two, but netting a hat trick with two more goals after the 85th minute to propel Arsenal to a dramatic win over Chelsea. Final score, Chelsea 3, Arsenal 5. Newcastle United played again this week, and if you have spent any time listening to the show, you know that I'm a fan. It's hard to describe what it feels like to read this, but for the first 10 games of this Premier League season, Newcastle find themselves undefeated and sitting pretty in third place in the Premier League standings. For those who don't understand the significance of this, just two years ago, Newcastle wasn't even in the Premier League. It really has been a dream start for Newcastle, and it's been a constant source of happiness for my life in the past 10 weeks. Enough about me, though. Let's recap this week's fixture between Newcastle United and Stoke City. It was a cold, rainy Monday night in Stoke as both teams took the field. This game was in Britannia Stadium, a notoriously difficult stage to play at for any visiting side. After an extremely disappointing and dramatic loss to Blackburn in the League Cup this past week, Newcastle captain Fabricio Colaccini had promised a Newcastle victory over Stoke, and Newcastle was poised to deliver. In the 12th minute, Gabriel Obertan, who has become known at Newcastle for his wasteful crosses, found himself with plenty of space to provide an easy on-point cross to Dembamba, which Bob buried in the back of the net from point-blank range. Things would go from good to great for Newcastle when Dembamba got another ball right in front of the net, which he was able to poke in at the 40th minute, making the score... Two to nothing at the half. Chances continued before and after half for Stoke, though, and they had several chances to put the ball past Tim Cruel, but were only able to capitalize on an iffy penalty call against who else but Dembamba. With the score now two to one, it was looking like much more of a game until Leon Best was fouled in the box on a corner kick, bringing Dembamba to the penalty spot to complete his hat trick. Without even as much as a hint of apprehension, Ba expertly put the ball past keeper, diving the wrong direction to complete his second hat-trick of the year. It's absolutely incredible. With a 2-1 win against Stoke, Newcastle leapt past Chelsea to secure third place in the league and now can look forward to more of a test against Everton this weekend at 8.45 a.m. Saturday morning. I'll be watching. Will you? 
Today marks a historic milestone for one of the most decorated managers in all of soccer today, Pep Guardiola of Barcelona. Today's Champions League tie against Victoria Pilsen is Guardiola's 200th game as manager of Barcelona. In his first 199 games, Pep has won an astounding 143, tied 39, and lost only 17 games. In that same time, just over three years now, Guardiola has won 12 trophies, including one Club World Cup, two UEFA Super Cups, three Spanish Supercopas, two Champions League titles, one Copa del Rey, and three La Liga titles. It's safe to say that Guardiola will have many more fruitful years as manager at the helm of the Catalan Giants Barcelona. And in this week's weird soccer news, it comes once again from who else but Mario Balotelli. Reports have come in that the Italian striker in Manchester City has built a four-wheeler racetrack in his backyard. For those not aware, Balotelli is currently living in a hotel room after last week he and his friends almost burnt his house down while lighting fireworks off in his bathroom. Apparently the racetrack renovations are taking place at the same time. And another fun Mario Balotelli story, which I'm just going to throw out there, take it or leave it. But his mother asked him to go out and pick up an iron from the local department store. Five hours later, Balotelli came home not with an iron, but with a full-size trampoline, a ping-pong set, two Vespa scooters, and a model of electric car kit. Mario Balotelli, I hope you never change. For Eye on the Triangle Soccer News, I'm Matt Gardner. Thanks, Matt. And as always, history happens every week. And this week is no exception. So Nick and Dave have brought us what happened this week in history. Hello, and welcome to This Week in History. I'm Nick. And I'm Dave. This week in 1765, the Stamp Act went into effect, essentially putting a British tax on any and all paper goods, including legal documents, magazines, and newspapers. The act became a topic of major protest in the 13 colonies, and was a prime example of taxation without representation. In 1859, the 163-foot-tall lighthouse at Cape Lookout, North Carolina, was first lit. Its beam can be seen for up to 19 miles and is one of the few remaining lighthouses that is lit during the day. In 1861, Jefferson Davis was elected president of the Confederate States of America. He served for just over four years and was stripped of his eligibility to run for office after his capture in 1865. Back in 1869, the first college football game took place. The game was between Rutgers and Princeton University, ending with a score of 6-4 to four Rutgers. In 1889, North and South Dakota were admitted as the 39th and 40th U.S. states. The Dakotas are home to the Badlands, Mount Rushmore, and the Theodore Roosevelt National Park. This week in 1929, the Museum of Modern Art in New York City opened to the public. The museum attracts 2.5 million visitors each year and is home to Van Gogh's Starry Night, Dolly's The Persistence of Memory, Water Lilies by Monet, and Warhol's Campbell's Soup Cans. That's a lot of art, Dave. It certainly is, Nick. In 1944, Franklin D. Roosevelt was elected for his record fourth and final term as president. He's known for leading the nation out of the Great Depression and through most of World War II, and also for his use of radio in communicating with the American people. In 1952, the National Security Agency was established. Housed under the Department of Defense, the agency is a key component of the U.S. intelligence community and is headquartered in Fort Meade, Maryland. In 1964, residents of Washington, D.C. voted in a presidential election for the first time. This took place only after years of controversy in which D.C. residents referred to their not being allowed to vote as a form of taxation without representation. 
And rounding out our presidential election theme here, in 2008, Barack Obama became the first African American to be elected President of the United States after being a U.S. Senator for Illinois for just three and a half years. Birthdays! This week in 1728, famous explorer Captain James Cook was born. In 1734, Daniel Boone, American frontiersman, came into the world. Marie Antoinette, Queen of France, came into being this week in 1755. James K. Polk, 11th President of the United States, was brought into being in 1795. John Philip Sousa, American composer famously known as the March King, was born in 1854. He's particularly famous for his pieces Washington Post, Semper Fidelis, and Stars and Stripes Forever. Walter Cronkite, American news anchor, was born in 1916, and that's the way it is. American actress Sally Field, known for her roles in Norma Ray, Sybil, and The Flying Nun, was born this week in 1946. American military commander David Petraeus was born this week in 1952. And finally, Jeff Probst, host of the reality television show Survivor, was born this week in 1962. Well, that's all the knowledge we've got for you this week. I'm Nick. And I'm Dave. Thanks for listening, and keep it historical, Rally. Thanks for joining us this week on Eye on the Triangle. I want to thank all of our contributors, and I want to thank you, the listener. If you have questions, comments, or want to submit a story idea, give us a call at 515-2401 or email us at publicaffairs at wknc.org. Tune in next week for more news from NC State and beyond. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Nick Savage.